Would you turn to Mark 15? We'll go through two verses today, Mark 15 and verses 33 and 34. And the word of God reads, When the sixth hour came, Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, that is three hours later, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the worst news ever, which rendered the gospel to be the best news ever. This is the darkest time that shone the most brilliant light in the heart of those who believe. The death of our Lord that brought about the death of death. Here we come to what I believe to be the most foundational passage in all the entire Bible. It is indeed the longest three hours in all of human history because it is when eternity of hell is compressed and swallowed up in this short time frame. Here we come to what the theologians would say, the mystery of all mysteries. In the entire Bible, there is no other sentence that is so difficult to explain like when our Lord was forsaken by God. This is the most mysterious yet the richest passage in the Scripture. Right here, Certainty cross paths, uncertainty, and they merge into one. And if any teacher of the word comes across this passage and is not most mind boggled, dumbfounded, if any preacher claims that he somehow figured out what this passage says fully, know this that surely he must have misunderstood this passage entirely. And yet, if it is written, then what then God would intend for us but to learn it, to study it, to meditate on it, and be edified by it. Most of all, most importantly, if it is written, then surely God intends for His Son to be so adored, magnified, and worshipped through it. What does this mean when darkness fell upon the land? What is it referring to? What did Jesus mean by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How do we see Christ magnified and adored in this event when he's so humble and broken? I dare to say that even if thousands of books were written to um, uncover what is going on in these three hours, yet still we wouldn't even scratch the surface of what it fully means. But by God's grace, We've got one message to cover all that we can in these two, two verses. Now, there are, th- there are six miracles that took place at the time of Jesus' death on the cross. Six miracles. Mark records in his chapter four of them. Matthew adds two more. The first is the darkness that covered the land. Second, The forsaking of the Father. Third, the giving up of Jesus' spirit. Fourth, the tearing of the veil of the temple. These are the four miracles that took place, and Mark records them here. And Matthew adds two more, and that is the splitting of the rocks and the shaking, the 
earthquake that took place, that is the fifth and the sixth and the final one, is the resurrection of many bodies of believers, physical resurrection that took place. Today we'll cover only two miracles, the first two, the darken, the darkness and the forsaking. So first the darkness. So we read in verse 33, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, Mark 15, 25, if you recall, um, our Lord was crucified at the third hour, which really, um, in, in another way, uh, what we say at 9 a.m., that's when Jesus was crucified. And then he gave his spirit, he died at the sixth hour, that is to say 3 p.m. So from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., <clears throat> which is in total, Jesus was crucified. He was hung on the cross for six hours. Now, these six hours can be broken evenly into two parts each of which is three hours long. Now, the first three hours when Jesus was hung on a tree, it was filled with many activities. There were mockings, there were scorns. It was during this time, our Lord spoke three times. The first is when he prayed to the Father in order to forgive the sins of those people that mocked him. The second, we looked at that last week when Jesus told this penitent sinner, uh, the thief on the cross, how he's got a place for him in paradise. And the third, when Jesus committed his mother to John and vice versa. So af and after he dealt with the interest of others, just seeking after others' interest above his own, even while he was hung on the cross. After praying for the lost people, after saving this lost man, and after honoring his mother, the first three hours were over. And now the two, the, the second lot of hours has begun. And it began with silence that was deafening. The Bible doesn't record any word that was spoken during this time. How come? Well, no, no man spoke because heaven spoke. We read, it says, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So when the sun was at its zenith, when it was six, that the sixth hour, which is 12 p.m., Dark, darkness engulfed the cross. It was pitch black for three hours. No word from Jesus nor his mockers during this time. Now, please note this word land here in this verse is also translated 250 times to the word earth. So this verse can be translated as to say, darkness fell over the whole earth until the ninth hour. It can also be translated to be the word ground or country. So was it a local darkness that uh, covered just only Israel? Or uh, was it a global one that covered the entire earth? Well, we can't be sure, but uh, Luke verse 23 chapter 23 verse 45 says that the sun was obscured or eclipsed but literally it, it can be read as um, the sun's light failing sun's light failing which does suggest that the cause of the darkness was most likely the sun itself as opposed to some obstruction or an eclipse that blocked the light of the sun. Most certainly it would not have been an eclipse, like the astronomical eclipse that took place. It would have been impossible since um, um, all Passover feasts would have fallen 
during the full moon, when the sun was at its furthest distance away from the moon. So most likely, I believe that the sun did not give its rays for three hours. It's not hard to fetch, since the Bible does mention that before this event in the past, it did take place. And also the, the New Testament speaks of the future judgment that it will take place again. For example, Mark 13, verse 24, Jesus foretold that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And so if the entire sun was darkened, when it was meant to be at its brightest light from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., then it seems that this darkness must have been felt. I believe it's around the whole world. Wherever you went, it would have been a supernatural blackout. God intervened and he switched off the light in his world. Now, when did God do that? When his son was dying on the cross. The Bible tells us when Jesus was born, there was light that shone in the sky. But at his death, it was black darkness. Jesus spoke of himself to be the light of the world. But at the time when he was dying during those terrible three hours, darkness swallowed up this light. What's going on? What was the purpose of this thick darkness? What was God communicating through this phenomenon? Well, some com commentators, they kind of like to spiritualize uh, what is going on and, and suggested that nature was sympathizing with her Lord. You know, as to say that the son refused to look upon the, the, the shame and the nakedness of, of Jesus. And I read this, I go, whoa. It sounds good as a devotional thing, but in reality, that is not what it's meant. Other commentators were saying that God was casting a veil over Jesus' suffering. In other words, like the father was sympathizing with the nakedness of Jesus, and so he kind of wanted to cover his nakedness. Well, if this was true, then why would God only cover Jesus with the only half of the time when he was naked? Why leaving the son exposed to all kinds of shame and mockery for the first three hours and only cover him in a second law? That doesn't make sense at all. But we don't have to guess what this darkness means. All we need to do is to study the Old Testament and we find that darkness clearly conveys divine judgment. And many passages in the Old Testament teach this truth. For example, let me give you three examples. Um, when the Assyrians were used by God to judge God's people, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 5.30, If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. Joel, once again, when he spoke of the day of the Lord in Joel 2.31, he says, the sun will be turned into darkness. Again, Amos, uh, when he spoke once again about the day of the Lord, when God will come with judgment, he said in eight, Amos 8 verse 9, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. In fact, not just only the Old Testament where darkness is associated with judgment, but even in the New Testament, we know that many times Jesus referred to hellfire to be the outer darkness. Peter calls hellfire pits of darkness. And those three hours were a preview of the future judgment that will befall all unbelievers that would die rejecting Christ. And what is it that God judges? And nothing but sin. 
You know, God won't judge us based on the color of our eyes or the color of our skin. He won't judge us based on our height or accent. When the scripture speaks of judgment, it speaks directly, emphatically about sin. That's why when Jesus uh, referred to the Holy Spirit's role, he said he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So why did darkness fall over the whole land? Answer, because of our sin, our guilt and shame that fell upon Jesus on the cross and God was about to bring divine judgment. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we were healed. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Jesus who had no sin of his own. God was making him out to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or, in other words, to, to bear the righteousness of God. In that darkness, those dark hours, it was time for divine judgment. Time for mourning, for weeping and gnashing of teeth. Imagine how tormenting it would have been for Jesus to bear our sins. Imagine this. It's kind of something I shared last Tuesday night in a study. Imagine if we all collected our sins and handed them over. Where is Young? I used him as an example. Maybe I'll just use him again. Imagine we handed all our sins to Young. And told them, young, we kind of feel guilty and terrible about the sins we've committed. And it kind of feels awkward that we just think of them every day. We just want to hand them over to you. You own our sins. You're responsible. What, what, what kind of grief, what guilt would have to fill his heart? I mean, a poor guy, young I mean, he could barely get some sleep at night because of his own sin. How much all the more agony he would have to experience because not only is he carrying his own, but our sins also. And yet, there is one thing for young who is a sinner like all of us to bear our sins, and it is entirely another for the Son of God who before eternity passed, not only knew no sin, but the exact opposite, abhors all sin, loathes all kinds of evil. And yet the Son of God was made to bear not just the sins of those people in this room, but all the sins of all the people who would believe in him since the beginning of creation down through the ages to the last man standing. Every vile and wicked sin, past, present, and future, all of them, hidden sin, exposed sin, shameful and respectable, all sexual and homosexual sins, whether our anger, backbiting, gossiping, slander, selfishness, everything evil, sinful thoughts, sinful words and actions, all were thrown and pressed upon the shoulders of this spotless Lamb of God. 
He claimed them all to be his own. His own. On the cross during his dark hours. I mean, what grief, what guilt and shame must Jesus have experienced, brothers, during this dark time? He wrote his name over every sin that was committed as though it was his own sin. And he looked so closely to every sin. He smelled the filthiness and the repulsiveness of those sins as though they were his. And he felt the very guilt that we're meant to feel. And he was sickened with its contact. Yet he identified himself with all of them as though they were flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. And he crushed them. Who would dare to stand and to rise up and and say, I can describe the extent of the suffering Jesus must have experienced during this time. Yet he did it voluntarily. He gave himself up to be our representative. To be our substitute in order to set us free from our guilt and grief. In order to remove the very stain of sin that smudged our hearts. What an amazing love. What kind of son of God is he? Is he not worthy to be worshipped by every man and every woman in this room? And if this was not terribly painful enough, wait, there is more. Because after darkness, there is that forsaking. Second point, forsaking. This is the second miracle that took place at the cross. Sure enough, it's not physical miracle, but nonetheless, it is supernatural miracle that took place. Here is that where we come to the mystery of all mysteries. This is the most incomprehensible, unfathomable event of all events. Where there was hidden movements in the shadow between the persons of the triune God. Once again, there was so much going on during the first three hours But the gospel records nothing, nada, zilch. What happened during these hours from 12 noon to 3 p.m. When darkness fell and the whole world almost like hit the mute button. Nothing. And then we read in verse 34, at the ninth hour, that is to say at 3 p.m., Jesus, all of a sudden, He broke the silence and out of the depth of Golgotha, Calvary, it says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. This is an Aramaic version of what Jesus said. If you look at Matthew, Matthew gives us the Hebrew version, which is Eli, Eli. And the reason why uh, he would uh, Mark mentions Aramaic is we know that ever since the return from the exile, when the Israelites were uh, taken captive by the Babylonian and the Persian Empire, and then after they left, and until Jesus' time, common man spoke Aramaic every day life, and it's only when they would go to the synagogue or read the Torah that would read it in Hebrew. Now, what does it mean when Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Mark tells us, he translates it for us. It says, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi means my God. Lama sabachthani means why have you forsaken me? And if you know your Bible, you know your Old Testament, you know that Jesus here was referring to Psalm 22, verse 1. 
And so after going through these three hours of torture, of torment, now Jesus coming out of it, and he gives us a brief summary of what kind of experience he felt during these three hours. And what I want to do is I want to break them down into three parts so we can actually get as much as we could out of this sentence. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. This cry reveals the depth of Jesus' suffering. You know, when believers normally come to the end of their life's journey and they're minutes away from departing and being with their Lord, I'm sure many of us have experienced this, have seen this, um, there is something blessed about, about their death, right? There is that peace, as though they could see the face of God smiling. But not so with Christ when he died. There was no peace in his death. There's only troubled soul. You know, when, when we hear of the faithful saints of the past during a time of severe persecution even, how they got themselves together and they marched forward to their torture and to their death, singing shouts of praises and victory. As though they already conquered their enemy. And we say, wow, amazing. What, what kind of godly people they were. Or we say with Jeremiah, let me die the death of the righteous. Let my last end be like this. We say we would love to die like the way they, would, they died. But here, the Lord's cry was not a cry of praise. No. It was a cry of anguish. Why? What, was Jesus somehow coward? He was fearing death? Was he somehow less godly than those saints of the past that were tortured and died severe, um, painful death? No. God forbid. All believers go to their death guilt-free. Their sins were already buried in the depth of the sea. Praise God, their sins were forgiven and forgotten. But our Lord, oh, how he went to his death feeling the guilt and anguish that we should have felt. And then in severe agony, in torture and torment, unknown even to the worst kind of sinners in hell. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which brings us to the second thing that we need to note in being forsaken. Please note, my God, my God, is a repetition of both personal pronoun, my. Not just God, God, my God. And the reference to God. And Jesus here is expressing his strong longing, this, this deep yearning affection that he has for God. So if we would reflect on this, with all the sins of the world supernaturally transferred to him, and although he possessed them all to be his own, and yet even when God came to visit him in judgment, you know, he wasn't internally affected by any of them. Well, we need to understand this. Jesus at his own disposal was every sinful anger as though it was his own. Every lustful desire. And he could have capitalized on any of them to kind of get some comfort. This just to show us how 
absolutely pure how holy Jesus is. That even at the time when he born all of our sins and in his deepest agony, in his most vulnerable state, yet internally, what did he do? He sought the face of God. He remained resolved. His heart was solid as a rock. Desiring God was his greatest passion. Uh, He had waves upon waves of sin, tsunamis of temptations coming at him, crashing on him, but yet unmoved by them. His hunger and thirst for God was far more intense than all the pain he was experiencing at that time. And at the peak of his agony, he cried out, My God, my God, I thirst for you, God. I hunger for you, God. By the way, This was the first time Jesus would refer to God as God as opposed to my father. Now, how come? This this brings us to the third thing that we need to note in the forsaken. We'll continue on and he says, why have you forsaken me? He felt abandoned, banished. Now, what does it mean that God forsook Jesus? What does that mean? Well, this separation most definitely was not in nature, in essence. It couldn't be. God, as we know, is three persons in one. There is that one essence. All the three persons of the Godhead enjoyed the one and the same nature. And a separation could not be at this level. Otherwise, God would have ceased to be God. And that would have been impossible, right? Nor does it mean that Jesus somehow ceased to be the second member of the Trinity. No. Once incarnation took place 33 years ago, his divinity was never separated from his humanity. The Council of Chaldeans, I mean, I I recall, I think it was Samuel, who prayed in his prayer, um, the creed of that council says this. Two natures in Christ are without confusion, change, division, or separation. So rather than that, what happened actually was, and for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus was separated from the loving communion that he enjoyed with the Father. On Golgotha, the Father descended in judgment. He was, as it were, laying his hands upon the head of the Son of God, who happens to be at that moment of time our escape goat, confessing upon him all of our sins. And then, as it says in Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on the wickedness with favor. So God in his perfect purity and righteousness cannot look at sin. He finds it absolutely repulsive. And so the father looked upon the son. And what did he see? He saw Jesus bearing our wickedness. The father looked away, abandoned the son, leaving him to suffer alone. As in Hebrews 13, 12 says, outside the gate, Jesus was banished by the father, from the father. And God the Son, who before time began, was in the bosom of the Father, ever beholding, savoring the fellowship and the perfect intimacy with the Father. 
This son of God who for all eternity delighted to be the sole object of the father's pleasure. Because he chose to bear our sins willingly. He was left forsaken and rejected by the father. When we read the Gospels, we know that Jesus, there are many times he's been forsaken by men, all kinds of men. His family at the early of his ministry, they accused him of being a, a madman. And even his own intimate followers, the scripture clearly says, and we've gone through this before, forsook him and fled, fled away. We know what Peter did when he denied him. We know that Judas betrayed him. And even the multitudes, and including the nation itself, called him out for, for his death. They wanted his blood. And though Jesus felt um, this disappointment in a very real way, but he always had this endless supply of comfort from the Father. Yes, rejected of men. But he's all, he always threw himself in the bosom of the Father with absolute confidence that the Father will give him the comfort that he needed. And the more Jesus felt unloved by men, the more he drank of this endless supply of love from the Father, but not so on the cross. This is not the case when Jesus was hung on that cross. The Father forsook the son now it's not to say that the father was not present at Golgotha it cannot be he's omnipresent he's everywhere he was there the father was there Jesus did not speak in the midair he spoke and the father was there he was there only to pour out the full weight of God's wrath not against sinners, but against the sin bearer. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Later on in the same chapter it says, My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The father was there not to protect this, his son from sinners, but to punish his son on behalf of sinners. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Why? For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. One who has always been the sole object of his father's pleasure, has become on that day the object of the father's wrath. The father forsook the son. In what way did he forsake him? In comfort. But yet he was present in an unequaled anger, unleashing his full fury against sin, punishing it. The sin in the spotless Lamb of God. Why? So that sinners like you and I would be set free. Meditate on this truth, brothers and sisters. Meditate on this truth. David could say in Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why, David, would you not fear any evil? Why? For you are with me. But what comfort was there for our Lord when God forsook him? Once again, David could say, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? But how can our Lord not shudder in terror when Yahweh becomes his own darkness 
when Yama becomes his crusher in these three terrible hours in the cross. John MacArthur comments on this and he says, No relief was given to Jesus on the cross. Such is a picture of hell in which the full fury of God's wrath is ever present, but the comfort of his love and compassion is utterly absent. On the cross, the Lord Jesus endured the full reality of hell's torment, including being forsaken by his Father. God's infinite wrath unleashed infinite punishment on the infinite incarnate Son of God. And on the cross, he drank all of hell's cup for his people in those three dark hours. God's fiercest wrath upon his Son revealed much, right? Revealed much of him. I believe the greatest of all it reveals his inexpressible, unspeakable, boundless love for sinners. But where does this leave us? Well, I want to direct the application first to my dear friends who are unbelievers. Those who have not yet come to Christ to be saved. Dear friends, many of you know the gospel off by heart. I know that. I know many of you could recite the gospel back to front if I would ask. But yet your heart is still so dead that in the face of the cross, the agony and the suffering and all of the love of God that he shows to us in the death of Christ for sinners, you're still unmoved. Your conscience is seared. And you say, well, I don't really care about salvation. I know I'm going to hell. But I'm not really fussed about it. Friend. How depraved do you have to be? How wicked must you be to know that the gift of salvation costed Christ to suffer infinite wrath? That the gospel that saves is offered freely to you without any charge. And the means to appropriate your salvation is not to do any hard work but to believe in Christ. And yet, you shrug your shoulders, you snort at God with your unbelief, and you say, I don't really care. What filth, what defilement must be residing down to the very depth of your soul? Dear friend, to hear this loveliness of Christ, sacrificing himself, and yet you reject him so adamantly. And for what? For self-love? Because you want to hug your, your sin so tightly to your chest all the way to your damnation? Friend. What severe judgment must be awaiting you if you continue to remain in this condition? Ponder upon this. If God the Father punished God the Son because of sin, though his heart will, will still remain to be perfectly pure, what then will he do to you in a day of reckoning if you face him in judgment? With such a condition of your heart. Please. I urge you. Consider your eternity. Consider what is at stake. 
And yet, with all your constant rejections, here is Christ offered once more to you with a message of peace, an invitation of hope that is extended to you now. And this invitation is written with his blood, red blood, stamped with his mercy, sealed by his grace and offered to you personally. Will you reject him once more? I would to God that you would accept this invitation. Would to God. Would to God that you would put a smile on the face of those angels in heaven that are watching right now. And that you would accept to become a trophy of Jesus even now. Lay down your weapons of self-righteousness. I am down. It will not avail you in the day of reckoning. Stop fighting against God. Say to God, God, I'm such a great sinner. I am not worthy to have my sins forgiven. Oh, my, my guilt, my shame. But I'll take Christ to be my Savior. I'll take him to be my my perfect substitute. In the name of God, dear friend, believe in him and he will be saved. Believe that he died for your sins and you will be saved. My dear brothers and sisters, those of us who are saved, What a great Savior we have. Does any of us lack love for our Savior? Anyone wants to rekindle more fervent love for him as I would desire? The scripture says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. And indeed behold how poor has Jesus become for us. That long ago, way before we raised our eyes upon Calvary's cross. Christ with his heart full of compassion for you. Looked upon you. Looked upon your sinful state. And every gram of unmixed fury that God would have visited upon you in eternal torment of hell. Christ, in his love for you, brethren. It was as though he spoke to the Father and said, Father, let me be their sacrifice. Let me be their substitute. It is my earnest desire to represent them. And after being brutally crushed for your iniquities, he then, as it were, would look upon you and would say, you are my dear child. How precious you are to me. How I would love to have you as the apples of my eyes. And I opened the eternal doors of communion with me, never ever to be shut again. Brothers, how can we refuse to delight on one that is so great, so good to us? Can Jesus be so kind with you and you still cherish your your sin that he was punished for? No, you can't. We can't. What motivation do we want to live exclusively to him? Brothers, sisters, it is Jesus' love for us. The greatest motivation. This wonderful, amazing love clearly displayed on the cross that drives us to put to death all sins and to go to him again and again 
fighting against the, these passions of our flesh in order to be determined to have him to be the all-satisfying being for all that we want and need. May our understanding of how poor he became for us, which we'll never be able to exhaust the depth of, may it lead us to love him and cherish him and to consider even the reproach of Christ to be our treasure. Brothers, I call upon you to meditate on this truth. Reflect on it every day. Never get sick and tired of remembering what Jesus done for you on the cross then and after you meditate on it. Tell it. Tell it to others. Speak of it to your spouses at home. Remind your children, tell your children of it every day. How Jesus was your perfect substitute. What agony, what pain he's gone through in order to relieve you from your eternal torment. Go into the highways and byways. Go and tell unbelievers wherever they are found. Come and behold what a great Savior we have. You will never regret it when you live this way. Amen. Lord God. Two verses, but yet in these two verses, abundant truth that would be able to satisfy the hungry soul for eternity to come. Uh, this phrase, this question, how. You, God, forsook Jesus for three hours. Was the cost for our sins to be punished and forgiven. Lord, what thankfulness ought to fill our heart. What gratitude we ought to have towards you, Lord. How you're calling upon us to live exclusively for Christ, just like he died exclusively for us. Is there anything in our lives that Jesus is not worthy to be Lord over? And Father, if we have come to a saving faith to believe that Jesus died for our sins and to trust Him with our salvation? Is there anything else that we should not be trusting Him in? Or for, we pray, Father, teach our hearts not only to trust Jesus for our salvation, but to trust Him for everything else in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.